I think leadership casts a long shadow, both in the software agency world where I live and I'm sure in gaming studios as well. If the boardroom is barking for ROI and launch dates and promises to shareholders, there's no talk about the player in any of those conversations. Welcome back everyone to Building Better Games. The product is the thing we're all here for. Most of all, our players. Our ability to come up with something great, focus everyone on that objective, and execute effectively are what separates the good and, well, the ugly. Have you ever had a bad product manager? A good one? What was the difference? If you've seen a great product manager in your career, what impact did you notice that they had? Why is product management such a difficult craft to learn and internalize? So few people seem to be able to perform very well. Why do so many product managers end up just handing off feature requests from someone else, essentially just being a cog in the machine? Today, we have Paul Gable with us. Paul has over 20 years of experience as a product leader and has his own podcast where he focuses on everything product management. It's called Product Momentum. Even if you never want to be a PM a day in your life, it's critical to understand how product management and thinking can maximize our chances of building something great for players together. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Happy to be here. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Ben. I think I'd start off by saying I am a big fan of your show first. At ITX, where I'm at, I've shared many of your episodes with uh, the 21 folks on my team. It's been required listening on a few of those episodes. A bit about me, just to uh, share uh, a bit of insight. I have been through a few changes in my career. I find product management is more of a study in anthropology than anything else. Nobody in our field really has a product management degree hanging on our wall. Mm -hmm. uh, come from a military background, uh, got into government contracting, uh, did large-scale uh, modeling simulations and war games, uh, ran into the financial sector as a financial advisor for a hot minute, got into IT through the project management side of the house and uh, eventually found myself in the the more empathy people human driven product management discipline but really just happy to be here thanks for having me yeah we're, we're really glad you're here and i kind of want to kick us off you interact with client companies that have probably anywhere from like bad to none product management on one end to like really good on the other and i'm curious when you think about the difference in an organization or a team between when I have a good product manager and I don't, what are the big diffs? It's a very relevant question for where the product community is at right now. We have powerhouses like Airbnb saying we don't need product managers anymore. Mm -hmm. We have other companies that are really leaning in and hiring product people at a, at a really exciting rate. So there's bit of polarization, I think, in the community right now. And your question about what it's like to have a good one is, it's a bit like proving a negative. It's hard to tell when product management is failing, but it's easy to see when it's going well. It's hard to tell when things are going off the rails because things are still getting done. Code is still being shipped. Features are still being tested. Demos are still happening. So when, when product people are just doing their job, a lot of times it looks like you're writing user stories, you're unblocking developers, you're elaborating acceptance criteria, you're running demos. It can be very easy to feel like I'm doing a good job because I'm hitting all of these ceremonies and activities. 
And I think that there is value in those operational exercises. I'm not saying that we should just throw out Scrum. I'm not anti-Scrum. <laughs> we can go there too. But I think that when product people are relegated to that operational role and they become ticket writers and order takers and feature punchers, it becomes very easy to lull into a sense of complacency because things are getting done and you are a part of that. And it can feel like, well, there's, you know, what else is there to do? When you do take that more proactive product mindset approach and you aren't beholden to a lot of the project management, program level, burn up charts, you're thinking about the stories and experiences that we're trying to build in games. My world is enterprise software, mostly in the B2B space, sort of massively scaled platform as a product. The things that we can observe are much more akin to what I think it gets mislabeled as soft skills, right? It's empathy, it's leadership, communication. Yes, we need to have some guardrails on what product is expected to deliver. We can't just let people, you know, go off into some savant fugue state where they're just thinking about things all day long. We do need results and ROI. The primary source of success of the product manager is the success of the product. The success of the product is whether or not it's solving that problem for the user. There's a, a thing that came to mind for me, which is in the in an unhealthy model, but where someone's doing their job, when you start doing your job really well, you take on a second team and then you write all their user stories too. And you, you know, make sure that that backlog is in order and you, you do all the operational pieces that are part of the role. But I like how I almost am thinking about this in the terms of layers and there's an operational layer that is the processes and the tools that we use. Above that, there's this value layer. There's a value you're trying to create. There's an experience you're trying to generate for your audience, the player or there's a learning you're trying to achieve. If you are spending all your time in the operational layer, it's a fail state. And like you said, there's the uh, unfortunately labeled soft skills of communication, of influence, of leadership, of getting people on board with this stuff becomes so much more important in that role than, yes, my backlog is in order and I have entered in the acceptance criteria. Of all people, you as product managers should know those aren't outcomes, those are outputs. Exactly. 100%. Yeah, I think the other thing that I would say is a fail state in to use your term is when product people are only measured on those tactical outputs of backlog and user stories, it's it's failing to comprehend the context of of the bigger picture. What I mean by that, if you were to take some origami skills and build a paper castle, you've got banners and crenellations and a drawbridge that looks and feels like a castle and stables and then you take all those pieces of paper that you folded and put it together, you unfold everything, you put it through a paper shredder, and you turn it into tickets for somebody to go build. The drawbridge still makes sense as, as a self-contained idea, but it loses the broader picture as soon as it gets chopped up into tickets. And the product manager is really the only one. You can make the argument that a designer is, is also responsible for the experience of these things, but from a business value, from a team morale, which is often an unsung necessity that product managers are, are responsible for. The product manager is the one person on the team that is supposed to keep the tickets straight that we've just put through the paper shredder, but they also have to keep that whole castle in their minds. 
They have to be able to have a conversation about why are we building this in the first place? A product person could be doing a great job at moving tickets through a Kanban board or through a backlog in Jira. But if they're not keeping that, why are we building this and what value is it to the business and how is it helping users, then that's really the more important fail state that I would, I would look at. That holistic context of why are we building this in the first place? That, that's where the product manager is really going to help the team stay on track. Mm. Yeah, I like that visualization. I sometimes worry that, uh, you know, when we talk about what does product management mean and what do product managers do, we still go very much to a place of like, well, let me cut this up into its constituent components. Let me sort of like talk about backlogs and talk about reviews. And, and it's interesting because when I think about the most unbelievably effective product leaders that I've worked with in my career, those are none of, none of those things come up. To the castle analogy, I imagine a scenario that I've been in many times where it's like, okay, the product manager does know that they're building a castle. They understand all the pieces of the castle and they have broken that down again into its constituent components, into a backlog that the team can work on. But there's not anything there necessarily that implies a level of understanding. So how is this castle different than other castles that have been built before? Why was that castle built near a river, whereas ours is built on a mountain? What's the relative cost of building on a mountain? A couple examples are coming up in my head where I've watched one of the best product managers I've ever worked with in my career going into the team and like really just constantly bringing that lens of value and what value means to the team into every conversation and almost training them to put that lens on themselves occasionally. Because even the best engineer, if you go up to an engineer and you're like, build me a drawbridge, they're going to immediately, they may have built 50 different drawbridges, but no matter what, they have a set of baseline assumptions about what building a drawbridge entails. And that may or may not necessarily plug into what value means for your users. By the way, one of the things I love is when a great product manager is like, actually, all this stuff that we thought was important is not. Or there's this glaringly obvious thing that only becomes obvious when this brilliant product manager goes, like, let me break this down for you. And you're like, holy crap, how did we miss that? It's been looking us in the face this whole time. It was like dropping a nuke, a value nuke. And they could have just done that thing where they just broke it all down and just like you said, executed. Yeah. But they didn't do that. There was something inside those people where they they needed to like really, I need to understand this. Like I need to really understand what the user needs here. So that I don't know. I, I feel like as I reflect on what I just said there, there's a vagueness there, but like that feels like the missing piece, the missing link. 100%. I actually don't want to be offended by the vagueness either because the best product people I've worked with have a high capacity for going into that vagueness and coming out with something that's going to be useful, right? Like again, learning, experience, value, something like that, it comes back with them. And I think the reality is that the subjectivity and the, the, the nature of building something for other human beings is that there is lots of vagueness that when we tried to do this pre-planned two years in advance before the engineers ever touched the code at all. Like this is the value and this is how it breaks down and the system shell and blah, blah. Like it didn't work. And all of that led us to try even more specificity and longer planning cycles, which worked even worse. And so this idea of I go into that unknown, that vagueness to really try to understand what is it that we're trying to solve and bring that back. Like that to me that is what the best product managers do. And sometimes, like you said, it's the complete reversal of everything the team thought mattered. Yeah, yeah. 
So I, there's a lot to unpack there. There's three things that I want to make sure I hit on before I forget them. First one, super nerdy bumper sticker response. There are two types of people in the world, those who can extrapolate from incomplete data sets. <laughs> the second is, I, I think to your point, Aaron, first, the most important tool in a product manager's toolkit is the word no. Yeah. We are going to have to say no to great ideas. Yeah. We are going to have say, to say no to beautiful designs. And the product manager has to be the one to say, just because we can doesn't mean we should. The word no in a product manager's toolkit is one that we we don't exercise very often. And I'm pointing fingers at myself as well. I, it's hard to tell a designer that's a great idea and we're not going to do it. The third thing that I wanted to get to, which is probably the bigger point that you were starting to pull the thread on, Ben, is the idea of what happens when product management kind of abdicate its responsibilities. And these could be really good, hardworking people who are doing a good job by the organization standards. Well, there's two, two examples. First is if you Google like what happens when an engineer designs the UI, you'll come up with all these like Windows 98 Frankenstein, like layers and layers of ribbons and Word 98 of all the options expanded. And you can see an inch and a half of the document at the bottom. You can poke fun at, you know, what happens when an engineer builds something. But the engineers do have a really good sense of what it feels like to experience the thing because product people, we do like to pat ourselves on the back a lot about how important we are to the organization. But an engineer is not just valuable when their hands are on their keyboards coding. An engineer is a human who can extrapolate those experiences into real assessments and and analysis and, and provide really good feedback. But when you do have, I'm sure this is an example that applies to game studios as well. If you've got a hundred sprites of figures that you're trying to get mapped onto movement and and the designers and animators just go wild producing, you know, really beautiful assets, but they're not connected to the story or the mechanics or dynamics or aesthetics of the game, that word no kind of comes back into play because if it's not pointed at that North Star, if we're not rallying the team towards the same banner in the same direction. You're going to have all these teams of designers and engineers and QA and architects all doing really good stuff, but all going in different directions. So it's the product manager's job to keep that that North Star, keep that common banner. So it's their job to negotiate and compromise and say, that's great, but not yet, or all those other kind of conversations. And and this goes into the communication part of the conversation that I, I hope we can get to, which is product people are I use the word anthropologist earlier in the in the intro. I think product management is anthropology at its heart. It is understanding humans, understanding what makes them tick, what their pain points and frustrations and goals and desires are. It's much more about that than it is about anything yeah. efficiency related. I love that framing again. Like that, because that framing, I think that to me feels like the difference. Because again, I go back to the engineering or the VFX artist or whatever example of them building amazing things. And it's, it is the builder's frame though, is the default frame that they're going to take. And that was always one of the key things I saw that good product managers could do is bridge that gap. Like go sit down with those contributors and help them understand the anthropological perspective on the work that they were doing. And then have the engineer go back and just put his hands on his head and be like, oh my gosh, we don't even need to do half of this. And those are those beautiful moments, right? Where the engineer goes like, I had made all these assumptions as I was building my drawbridge of like all the 
the 50 things I needed to do, but now I just something just clicked and I'm like, we only need to do five of these things and we can ship it. Those are the moments where I'm like that. And you see that product manager walk away and I'm like, dude, you can go home now. You just added so much value. I want to take a quick break from the podcast. Over the last few years, producers have been asking Aaron and I, what's my role? What are the skills I should develop? How do I advance in my career? Game production is in a rough state. We're launching a course to help. It's called Succeeding in Game Production, What You Weren't Taught. Early feedback from our beta testers has been overwhelmingly positive. So we're moving into early access. If that's of interest, check it out in the show notes or head to buildingbettergames.gg and click course. Thanks. Let's get back to the podcast. I want to come back to the idea. You said Airbnb is trying to deprecate the role of product management, which kind of spun up in enterprise. And again, we don't see it a ton in games. It's usually either partially held by producers, partially held by designers or creative direction or something like that. But there's this end state that we're all talking about. So if I'm Airbnb and I'm going like, yeah, but you know, I have a bunch of people that think about the human, you know, they're my UI and UX designers. Why product? Why do I need this? So uh, Marty Kagan, you know, he's the, the lead at uh, the Silicon Valley product group. Marty's book, Empowered and, and later on Inspired, is the, I think a lot, of, a lot of the inspiration that I take and a lot of my leadership style comes from his four quad perspective on what product brings to the table. And his, his four main attributes are usable, feasible, valuable, and viable. I think the product manager is going to bring the, the value to the conversation. The product manager is going to be the one more on the hook for what is the return to the business? We do have to make sure that the the business has enough oxygen to stay alive. So the point about value that I think product management brings a unique lens to is the the ability to say yes designers are building beautiful UIs, crafting meaningful experiences, building games that feel rich and alive. The engineers are saying, "Yes, this is actually architecturally feasible and we have the technology to build this. And the product manager is going to take all this into consideration. And they're going to say, designer, you've built a rich ecosystem and we have time to build half of it. You know, developer, you've established a baseline uh, functionality and it's pretty complex. We're going to have to get this out the door and we're going to have to make some trade-off decisions and, and figure out, right, if we built everything that designers could imagine and built it to the level of security and robustness that an architect delighted in, you know, we would never ship anything. We're always going to have to make that trade-off, that communication, the negotiation, the compromise. You use the phrase that everybody refers to user stories as a placeholder for a conversation, right? Nobody ever remembers to go have that conversation. That is the important part. Having, having someone who's responsible for having a conversation is so much more valuable than is ever going to show up on a balance sheet. It's not going to be in a shareholder's earning report. We talked on a Friday afternoon and had an epiphany. It's not going to show up anywhere except in the, quali- right. in the quality of stuff that we're shipping. Aaron and I have been in an environment where there was enough revenue coming in that it was almost like, build everything, build all you want. The only thing that matters is, you know, this incredibly high quality bar and that actual delivery of value got slower and slower and slower over time as that focus on like, how do we do the few things that the most value became, you know what, let's just do it all because we have the resources and the time and all these things. And the outcome to the end user was poor and to the morale of the dev team and all these different things. And by the way, a lot of times you'd spend way too long designing epically 
overbuilt systems that were trying to solve every problem and it wouldn't even be good at the end. Yeah. There's a, there's a really helpful model I use often. Uh, again, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I didn't invent this, but I use it frequently. It's a tool called the Kano model. So uh, the, the reason that the, the Kano model is so helpful in, in a moment of conversation like this is because if you were to show up at the Hyatt to claim a room that you booked and the tenant at the front desk said, good news, we have hot water in our rooms now, you would be like, Great. If, if you show up and you and you are announced, you know, in some celebratory tone, like, hey, we've got uh, at this point, we could probably even say we have Wi-Fi in our rooms now. It's just expected that we have these table stakes now. You have sheets on your bed. You have, you know, none of these things are braggable features of the product. Yeah. So those are table stakes. If a product person is prioritizing things right, they're going to have a really solid blend of those things that are table stakes. You're making the experience not bad. You've achieved table stakes. Okay, why am I staying here than anywhere else? If I'm uh, booking at the Hyatt over the Hilton or more likely than not, it's because I've had a good experience in the past and it's something along the lines of they've got a either a really good restaurant or access to cultural activities in the city that I'm staying or there's there's something that that's a little bit extra, right? It's the, it's the chocolates on your pillow, amenities that, that just go a little bit above and beyond. The temptation is to over-index on those delighters and say, okay, if that's what gets people to book with us, then we're just going to do all delighters all the time. When we start focusing on all that and now the hot water in the room is cold, it doesn't matter how many delighters we have in the ecosystem if we've now let the product erode to the point now that the experience, the baseline experience sucks. Right. And we can say, but we have... 50 cent wing night on Thursdays. Don't you want to come stay with us? Like, no, you've got cold water in your rooms. I'm not staying with you. So I, I think we can take this analogy back to products and games and say, of course, we're going to want all these features that bloat the backlog with amazing killer ideas. But we, if we've neglected server maintenance and people can't even log in, it doesn't matter how many bounties in our in our MMO we're, we're building in the product manager has to keep that blend of what are the table stakes? What are they absolutely going to abandon us? If it takes 10 minutes to match someone in a shooter, I'm having a bad time and I'm probably not going to come back and play your game again. Right. So having that balance of, yeah, this isn't the sexy stuff. We're, we're maintaining servers. Yeah. Gamers yeah. will never abandon you. They will scream at you on Reddit for six months straight. They will never abandon you. Exactly. It's yeah. like an abusive relationship, basically. I'm in one or two of those right now. <laughs> <laughs> From a product perspective, I, I think what I see a lot happening in the industry is an obsession with performance features. So like uh, looking back to the Kano model, an obsession with performance features and a lack of understanding about not just what are basic features, but also how basic features evolve over time. Because one of the things we talk about when we talk about the Kano model is that something that you thought was an exciter 10 years ago may now be a basic, actually, like it evolves. I feel like we build our video games almost like we build like sports cars. It's not like any of the plastics or fiberglass or anything, and that thing justifies the like $480,000 price tag. It's because it looks amazing and it goes really, really fast. And so when I think about that actually analogy now, I'm like, oh my God, we're, we build our video games like that now in many respects, where players are like, I can't even load the damn thing up on my computer, but we're like, yeah, but look at how pretty the water looks. There's a great example of this in the market right now. So 
game of the year for me is an easy pick. Baldur's Gate 3 is hands down my favorite game. And this is in a year as of the time of this recording where we have had some huge names drop. You know, Starfield is out. We could talk about Diablo 4 and what what's going on with that right now. But Baldur's Gate 3 for me, and in the way that this relates to this conversation, they were in open beta for three years before they launched. Product in the sort of e-commerce and B2B platform scale product world that where I live, we can sometimes iterate. We can build a minimal feature and get it out and have it do the job. And I was thinking, you know, reflecting most of the games, especially in under this AAA banner that we're talking about, have more of a big bang launch. Yeah. It's either there and it launches or it's not. So I feel like that that's something that in the product management circles that I travel, it's a bit of an advantage over game development because we do have the ability to to throw something at the wall, test it, you know, even with just a subset of beta users and show it to a select few and get feedback on and then, you know, show a little tile on a dashboard that gives gives some interaction that they didn't have before. But with a game, I feel like the model is either you're in open beta forever and then you launch successfully, which I think Baldur's Gate is a success story of that model. And we have a couple months left in the year, but my pick for game of the year. Anyway, so the reason that I'm bringing this up is I feel like there is a Kano model interaction here where, as you mentioned, things that were delighters are now table stakes. A lot of the the games that I've played that are successful at launch, and those are becoming fewer and further between, to, to have a successful launch yeah. as yeah. a video game studio, I feel like that's the high watermark now. I think the thing that is is helpful to bring from the product management world into the gaming industry is if we're going to build these massive experiences with expansive open worlds and continue to push the envelope of what players expect from a game, I think we as players and as studios need to reset our expectations of what it means to have a finished game. If it means having a bad experience at launch and then be finally viable a year later, I feel like patience is wearing thin in a lot of, in a lot of communities, publicly traded companies. That's a, a really insightful, like macro observation. I think what, what I think is even more interesting too, as you dig into that, when you start to realize why we have so much insecurity around that in the games industry, I think there's a story we tell ourselves that like, you're just, it's like showing your hand in a poker game or something like that is, is almost how I feel like people respond where it becomes personal. It becomes scary. So I, I think this is a comment on, on leadership, but it's a roundabout way to get there. I think when, when I hear interviews with the Larian studio CEO, you hear the, the love of the game in every comment that he makes about how they crafted it. And I think leadership casts a long shadow. Oh, yeah. Both in the the software agency world where I live and I'm sure in gaming studios as well. Yeah. If the boardroom is barking for ROI and launch dates and promises to shareholders, there's no talk about the player in any of those conversations. And if it when you hear leaders who who care about the experience that the players have, it's a much different conversation. It's just it's and people are much more willing to accept Baldur's Gate is not a perfect game. There are game-breaking bugs in it right now. It's not perfect, but we love this imperfect thing. Mm. And, and I think that, that that level of trust with a gaming community, it's a breath of fresh air. When games are promised to be 
the fill in the blank killer, the League of Legends killer, the Destiny killer, the, you know, whatever killer, this is the next thing. And then it launches and falls flat. It's like, well, you know, that was $70, $69.99 that I'm not getting back. Um, back to the leadership idea. I think when a studio or an agency or a, a product led company has a really strong opinion about itself and the value that it brings, it is going to craft an entirely different experience than someone who's saying, you know, this team's velocity is 53 points. Why isn't that velocity going up? I think you're correct about the assumption that many game studios make, and that is we have to do the Big Bang release. I wonder if there's this idea of a false binary there where you're either Big Bang release or you're like drip feeding it over the course of years of early access or something like that. I watched a GDC talk by a woman years and years and years ago, and she said something that was very interesting. And she said, if you make a product and you throw it in front of 10,000 players and they all hate it, but it, it was like a closed test, right? And they never come back. If you learned a lot, don't view that as this is the most atrocious failure that could ever happen. We're all doomed. There's another 10,000. Go learn from what they told you, make a better thing, get another 10,000, try again. They're going to come back. Just being disappointed is just comes with the territory as a player now. Gives it's something like, to I'm talk not, about. But I'm not, going, I'm not going anywhere. The other part of it too is that I actually think if you reframe that relationship with the player, rather than going, these 10,000 are all going to hate it and they're never going to answer my calls. No, if you say, we heard you, we made a bunch of changes, we're trying to serve you in a better way, you willing to try again? Most of them are going to be like, heck yeah, I'll try again. And to Aaron's point, they'll probably try again and again and again. And if they see you responding well, this, I, I've actually looked at the same, like the Boulder's Gate 3 thing, like that was it. They released a product. I mean, it, I get it. They had to get it to a functional place, but then they just kept working on it and kept working on it, kept working on it. I think that they actually knew what their market position was. And I also think they knew who their like core, the core nucleus of their audience would be. I think they just served that audience so well. They just created such a great product that a bunch of people who may never have considered trying one of those products are like, my friends seem to really be having fun with this. I think I'll throw myself into it. I love that too, that, that sort of principle of product. It's like serve your audience really well and other people will start looking. Yeah, yeah. A, a much more simple example for this was uh, Wordle. I mean, it, it's technically a game, yeah. right? It was built for an audience of one. The original developer built it for their significant other because they were looking to kill time. And it you know, ended up getting purchased by the New York Times. So I think that when you craft things with the the person who's going to be using or playing or, or interacting with it in mind and not the shareholder's return or not the number of conversions in a shopping cart, the way that a studio or an agency talks about their users or their players, it's going to be in the DNA of the products and games that we build. If they're a conservative company, they're going to ship conservative products. If they're a risk-taking game studio, they might ship an imperfect game, but it's going to have that thing that you were talking about. People are going to want to see why are so many people enjoying this? Why are they spending so much voluntary time, you know, going and, and completing these these quests? This is where the, that product management ethos really brings a lot to the table. I wish I had more data points that the vanity metrics that we like to point to, like monthly active users and all the rest. I think those are lagging indicators. We're, we're not... 
we're not looking at those things and saying we did the right thing because these numbers are going bigger. We know we did the right thing because people are giving us good qualitative, meaningful feedback despite our flaws. We've covered a lot of like key principles of approach and like what it means to really understand your audience and what it really means to like focus and prioritize on the, uh, the right things. Even if we want to walk away from this conversation and say, oh, well, that's a secret sauce and no one will ever understand it. I think even just having people in your organization that whose job it is to try to understand it and to like regularly feed that back culturally through the rest of the organization to me feels like worth its weight in gold. I don't see a lot of evidence that having the best process and having all the right meetings and having everyone sending the right reports around and actually leads to product success at all. You'll start moving very fast in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so to me, it's like, it's worth it to focus on these things. I am sure everyone who's been a product manager, their whole career would love to give you the perfect user manual for how to do this well, <laughs> but it's really hard and really complicated. And, and if it were so easy, we wouldn't even be having this conversation in the first place, right? To get, unfortunately, into truisms, perhaps, the core attitude of curiosity yeah. is something that is shared. And this willingness, again, to go into the unknown curiously and go, wait a minute, what's this team? Why do they exist? What are they trying to solve? How does that matter to players? What are they doing? What else could they be doing? Should I talk to them about that? Who do I talk to to find this out? Like there's this endless, it's this string of questions and perhaps that relates to the vagueness. It's like, hey, what are you supposed to do as a product manager? You're supposed to ask a ton of questions to learn a bunch of things and then figure out how to communicate that in a way that influences the organization to focus on what matters most. Riot actually had a product management discipline. So many game companies don't. And so Aaron and I, when we're talking to producers broadly, we focus a lot on this idea of a huge part of your job is aligning people towards value. You need to be making sure everybody is moving towards the value, focusing and doing as little work as possible to get as much progress as possible in that space. You know, it's been it's so interesting to that point that I remember feeling a lot of frustration within production at Riot and at various times. I mean, lots of highs, but some lows as well with thinking like, why are we doing this this way? Or I don't understand, or like this is broken. But it's funny because as I look back on Riot's model there, separating the operational management from the product management, I view as like one of the most intelligent structural decisions that the that, that company ever made. Yeah. And I think that it absolutely showed through the quality of the results in the product across the board and the quality of the teams. And I think also the team's internalized ability to understand the product at any time, because there are still so many organizations where there's a disconnect. It's so uncommon in game dev, right? What I wanted to kind of ask you, Paul, I'm a leader out there in games. I'm like an art leader, an art manager, or I'm a producer in a company where production means project management. And we don't even have the role, right? We've got designers, we've got producers, we've got artists and engineers and QA but we don't have a product role. And yet I, listening through this podcast, I heard something we're lacking. What do I do? So a product manager in a company that is not product-led or at least geared for product is probably going to break the company. Okay. I think the, the things that product people do have to be adopted from the very top. Mm. A product manager comes in and they say to the, the program I'm going to a scrum master on their way to the PMO meeting and, and they're like, I got to present a burn up chart. And I'm like, 
let's explore the unknowns and embrace our warts for for a minute. That's not going to fly. So there there has to be an adoption from the top that product is important. And I've been very fortunate to be part of organizations where that that is the case, where the leadership says, well, there is an element of ambiguity. We embrace it because we know there's no one else who is thinking about the user, the business value, the technology viability, the experience, and living in that sweet spot of not being in a subject matter expert in all four of those things. I'm not a, a CPA. I'm never going to be a company right, CFO. Right. I'm, I'm never going to be an art director. That's where a lot of that imposter syndrome comes from. So I don't bring that subject matter expertise. And I'm comfortable saying that now, finally, this far into my career. To answer your question, the things that a company that is not product-led or product-focused can bring into their organizations, I think I would say it's somebody who is responsible for empathy. Their top-line concern has to be the, the viability of the product, connecting that placement of the product or the game within the market and having an opinion about what it is and, and what problem it's trying to solve. Being a product manager is to fall in love with the problem. You solve the problem in not just the minimum way. MVP gets way too much airtime in product circles. It's not about building the MVP. That's startup land. It's not about just building the minimum. It's about building something that you know is going to solve a user's need. It's going to keep the business alive so they can keep helping more more users and players out. And I think if a leader at a company that doesn't have product management as a discipline is wondering whether or not they should install it, I'm very unlikely to convince you otherwise. You're going to have operational metrics. This goes very back to the beginning of our conversation. It's very hard to tell when product managers are failing because they can be showing all of the operational excellence signs that they're doing a good job. And if I'm talking to a leader who's wondering, should I free up some strategic thinking time? Should I delete them from some meeting invites so they can just talk to people and empathize? I'm not going to convince you that that's a good idea because you've got other metrics that are more important to you. It's just the organization's nature. It could be right for your market. There are some organizations where we should have a low trust. If a nuclear power plant says we're going to explore MVP and we're going to iterate like, no, I, I want you to have this right the first time. There are organizations and there are types of products where low trust is the right answer. And, you know, there are games where, to Nintendo's example, sitting and, and polishing things and taking a conservative approach is the right answer. So yeah. it's really about getting really real with what you want out of the out of the product. And really, it's about the conversation with other humans. To bring this full circle, we've got teams of humans that are creative and technically brilliant, and they love the the problem of solving a visual, visually complex dashboard or designing a an architecture that is robust and resilient and secure. And you know, we've got teams of humans that are that are in love with these little parts of our problems, so the you know the drawbridge and the moats of our castles. And when when we as product managers can get them to focus on the things that are going to solve the problem in the most meaningful way for our users and not our shareholders or or our or even our internal stakeholders. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the company that's going to unlock the real potential of product management and the catch 22, the the, you know, the the kind of open secret of product managers is 
code is still going to ship with or without a product manager. Yeah. We can even make the trend line go up and to the right, in, you know, without a product manager. Uh, but you're going to lose that human connection to, you know, from the humans building the thing to the humans paying for the thing to the humans playing the game and using the product that that anthropological empathy driven mindset is is really what I think a product manager brings that few other roles can can lay claim to in, in as much of a meaningful way as product managers. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. And thanks again, Paul. Um, I want to go over a handful of the top-level things that came out of this conversation. Number one, the principles are important. There is a level of dealing with uncertainty and, and understanding complex things involved in the role of being a product manager. But there are also practical components to this. The operational parts of the job, whether that be managing backlogs or getting your team aligned or you know writing user stories or whatever it might be, are important. And there is a way that you need to plug into the organization to make sure that things get done. The second thing is, is bringing curiosity is a fundamental attitude that seems like core to this role. So like really putting on your curiosity hat as a product lead and trying to deeply understand your teams, your audience, and the needs of your organization is going to be a core part of what makes you successful. Third thing is don't overfocus on MVP. It's kind of a uh, buzzword, a catchphrase in, in technology. And it's not that it doesn't matter to try and keep your scope low and things like this, but really like using things like the Kano model are actually going to serve you and give you a bit more of a critical thinking perspective on what features you need to build and which ones you don't. Yeah, I would just say that what people mean when they say MVP is usually version one. Yeah. Your MVP is not your product. Yeah. Number four, speaking to the Kano model, um, use that model. So, you know, delighters, performance features, basic or table stakes, um, you can look it up too. Um, it will absolutely help you. Um, I, actually, one of the things I tell our students to do is just go look up the Kano model and then use it on the thing you're working on right now and just like just do a little mental exercise of like mapping the features out based on what you think they are. You'll come away with some light bulbs for sure. I always have, certainly. And you can use that to really figure out what matters or doesn't matter in your product. Number five, being a PM or, or being really in that product role is fundamentally about adopting the frame of being an anthropologist and really focusing on the humans that are involved, uh, which is really cool. And really building and demonstrating empathy towards all of the people involved as well, whether that be your players, your teams, et cetera. Um, doing that and getting inside people's heads is going to be key to your success. And then finally, um, don't be afraid to narrow and focus on the who, like who your audience is. Um, again, with, this came up in the Baldur's Gate conversation, this idea of, you know, Larian really leaned into a certain target player that they were hoping would really enjoy the game. And yet now, because they did such a good job nailing that and building a great experience, now everyone else wants to play as well. And so there's a, definitely a lesson to be taken away uh, from that about like, you know, going too broad as opposed to focusing. 100%. You know, if, if we're uh, if we're closing up, I'll just say on the record, I feel a tremendous sense of gratitude just being invited. I've learned so much from your show. I, I hope that your audience finds what we talked about today valuable. So it's been a blast. Thanks again for having me. Oh, pleasure is ours. Thanks for coming, man. But anything else you want to plug? Yeah, I'll share uh, just one thing is we do have an annual conference. It's hosted here in Rochester, New York, where I'm based where we bring product and design leaders in from all over. So if you're in uh, in our neck of the woods next summer, June 2024, uh, we're already starting to put speakers together. It's a great way to interact and, and talk further about product and what we do. Perfect. 
Did you enjoy this content? Every two weeks, we will deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. Join game developers across the world and sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter at buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Again, that's buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Thanks for listening.